and this is what imposter syndrome or in fact most of the things that we are unhappy about or they want to be better at psychologically or for the internal world i want to feel better i want i don't want to feel like this i want to feel excited but i'm shit in my pants this isn't fun i used to be a sprint hurdler as, as a kid and i gave up eventually because i would just be throwing up before race. it was this is not pleasant Welcome to the One Moment Longer podcast presented by Any Question. I'm your host, Greg Bennett, and this episode has to be one of my all-time favorite episodes um, with Dr. Simon Marshall. He just gives so much information, so much education, and in an entertaining and just easily digestible way. It's just truly a remarkable episode. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did, and remember, success comes to those who endure just one moment longer. All right. Today, I'm joined by a truly accomplished and just multifaceted individual. He's a world-renowned sports psychologist, a co-author with his wife, Leslie Patterson, of the best-selling book, The Brave Athlete, and an Academy Award-winning screenwriter alongside Leslie for the Netflix movie, All Quiet on the Western Front. With a strong background in academia as a former professor at the University of California, San Diego, and San Diego State University, he's made a significant impact in the field of sports psychology. His diverse expertise makes him a fascinating guest, and I'm eager to dive into a conversation with him. It's an honor to have him join me today. So welcome, and thanks for joining me on the One Moment Longer podcast, Dr. Simon Marshall. How are you, mate? Thanks, Greg. So great to be here and to follow uh, my wife. So uh, I'm hoping she didn't <laughs> land me in it or you're going to ask me questions that she... <laughs> no, it was funny. Uh, you know, so Leslie and I were chatting a, a few episodes ago and uh, she lost internet at one point, but then you guys came back on and I could hear you in the background. I'm like, oh, that's Simon. And, and I, I obviously know of you and I know of your work. We have a lot of um, acquaintances and, and friends in common. So, and so I think I'm yelling through, hey, Simon, I need to get you on the show. And, and here you are. So I really appreciate it, mate. <laughs> No problem at all. Yeah, I dropped in for a few minutes and I heard her rabbiting on and then I thought, <laughs> best to leave her to it. No, it was, it was great because I've heard your name. Um, we have our friend in common, uh, Dr. Tommy Wood. Oh, Tommy, yes. Yes, yes. So Tommy's been on this this show probably four, maybe five. He's my go-to guy. He's my, yeah. he's my doctor that we talk about everything and anything and uh, he's just a really great guy and I'm pretty sure... You guys have done podcasts together, have you, or you've been on the we, same? We, we have. In fact, we've been part of a few businesses, startups together as well, yeah. and we've both consulted for a few sort of medical health, functional medicine-related companies. Yeah, he's just a fantastic guy. He's a lovely man in person. Mm. Um, obviously, mm. most of the things that he's always mo <laughs> talking to me about, you know, uh, carry more, lift more, do more. <laughs> you know, so we often get into that with the endurance exercise, but uh, yeah. no, he's a, he's a great guy. That's awesome. So where are you now? You've just traveled uh, back We home, are right? in uh, Los Angeles. Okay. Okay. And mate, I got to, I got to, like I did with Leslie, I got to send you a huge shout out and just congrats on the film and everything. Has that oh, all settled down? How's it been since it the has, It has. I mean, the, 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 the hoo-ha over the, the film itself has settled down, but what hasn't settled down, in fact, is ramping up is the, the next projects, you know, that come about ah. because of the success of All Quiet. Yes. So that's what we're doing well, which is all really great problems to have. You know, it's one of those things that you've been, we've been dreaming of for over 10 years. And when it finally hits, you're like, oh my God, this is it. This is what we always wanted. Yeah. And then you're, uh, you know, you're back into the grind, but uh, it's, it, we're really fortunate. It's been such an amazing 
experience the whole the whole thing. Surreal, but uh, amazing. Yeah, but you got to strike while the iron's hot, right? I imagine exactly. in this world. You know, it only takes six months and suddenly you've forgotten again. And so when things That's are going right. good, go, That's go, 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 right. go. <laughs> you know, who knows how long uh, the window uh, stays ajar for, but we think at least for hopefully for the rest of the year. And if we can just sort of try and really nail in the next projects. Yeah. And it's, it's a bit, it's funny because um, screenwriting or success in film is a lot like sport. You know, you win one or you do one big championship event mm-hmm. and you do well. And then, of course, the talk is, you know, was it a fluke or who did it? So really it's the second performance that really is the, is the big decider, whether you can repeat it. So so that's really the, the next goal. So we're buckling down and the only way we know how and the only way Leslie certainly knows how is, you know, uh, work hard. Uh, mm-hmm. It's all about the work, knuckle down and uh, get back to the business. <laughs> good on you, good on you. Because I think that, you know, like in sport, I imagine sometimes you even ask yourself the question, was that a fluke? And self-doubt can creep in. But with the the tools that you guys have at the disposable, understanding the mind and the power of the mind and the, has that come into play at all? Have you been kind of having these questions of doubt and then go, hang on, no, no, keep moving. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, Leslie and I differ. Uh, Our personalities are quite different as well. And she has, and it's funny because there are some differences between men and women generally about how confidence evolves over time. Mm. But Leslie, you know, one of the big lessons is that success, uh, confidence is earned, not learned. And so obviously Leslie's success in sport has given a tremendous confidence. And now I've just watched her confidence grow over the last 20 years. It's really Mm. quite phenomenal. And mine has sort of uh, gone up and down, up and down, uh, (laughs) depending on what I'm doing. And so, so, uh, but yeah, it, I think we've used our, you know, you've got to walk the talk as well, right? So we've been using the, our own tools that we use in coaching. We've used on ourselves and we're using it for film and they, they generalize pretty well because most of the things that make you successful in sport work in other fields as well. I mean, these mm. are stem cell skills, right? Of mm. confidence and managing your relationship with failure. Mm. and so on so they're not really unique to any one particular industry so and that's one of the great things i think about being or having some success in any field is that they're pretty portable you can pack them in a case and take them somewhere else (laughs) i love that i love that i want you to tell me a little bit more about i didn't know about the men and women and the way we we look at confidence because my wife and i are very different as well and i'm a bit more like you i find myself going up like I'm king of the world to, huh, I'm kind of, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, I'm curious. I know. The challenge with all of these, when you, especially when you're trying to make evidence-based statements about things like this, is really hard to, to nail down the, the causes. And uh, they certainly don't seem to be genetic. They're probably social cultural. Mm. Um, but one thing that we think uh, is a trend is that men's confidence uh, rises pretty exponentially and quickly through your mid twenties. Mm. Uh, and then through to when you get to about 30 or 40 and you're the peak of presumably in many instances uh, your professional career and then it starts to drop off mm. uh, the midlife crisis or what have you and you get to mid 40s and 50s but women's actually they grow into their confidence they become more and more so whilst there are it's like a um, a bit of a slower burn because the pressures on women are far different uh, younger women especially are far different than the pressures on men and they find they sort of almost like grow into their identity and they find that I, and you know Leslie and I are perfect examples mm. of that as well and I've watched that so you know women's confidence is often peaking around middle age and uh, and when men's is really sort of on the downward spiral yeah, fascinating. yeah and that's why it's important uh, if you're a guy have a, a strong relationship with somebody behind you to keep him keep you empowered keep you in the ring you know exactly, that's how i feel exactly. when i look at laura 
I, and you know, and, and we can get into this later, but you know, when I practice my gratitude every morning and, and one of the greatest things that I'm grateful for is that Laura keeps pushing me back in the ring, you know, and, right. and, and having somebody that empowers you like that is pretty cool. But mate, before we dive into a lot more of that, let, let's just, I want to re- recap your journey. Um, <laughs> you know, and I know it, you've done so much and, but tell me, you know, when did you first find your passion for, you know, sports psychology? I think probably as a, as a, as a, an athlete who couldn't cut it, <laughs> you know, I was a, a competitive cyclist. I was a elite amateur cyclist and really mm. wanting to uh, make a career out of it, or at least attempting to make a career out of it. And it soon became apparent that there were a number of things missing in that equation. One of which was talent, uh, physiologic <laughs> talent, um, and probably mindset as well. But what's, what was interesting about my journey in cycling compared to someone like Leslie's in sport is that um, I would have, you know, as most of us do, if you do sports science degrees, you're lab tested up the wazoo and, mm. and all my data suggested, oh my God, you know, you've really, you should, you've got the raw ingredients, but I just couldn't convert it. Huh. And so that to me said that there was probably some psychological uh, uh, issues at play as well, whether it was confidence or self-doubt or, or a whole bunch of stuff. And, and Les was the opposite. You know, they look at her data when she was sort of 17 or in talent identification programs. And, and it was like, no, sorry. And she would outperform her data. So we really have these sort of weird opposite trajectories. Mm. And I think that for me, that was one of the reasons why I found the psychology. Like, why? What is it? What do I need? What am I missing? Mm that I can't do this. And that started, I think, the journey into learning about how our internal world affects what we do and what we attempt and how we persist and when we quit and give up and and how we keep going. And and I think that made a big a big play in it. And then I just fell in love with the with science and the science of the mind. And uh, and I and I think that really for me that was a huge experience. I remember um, sort of when I was doing my undergraduate degree and slowly I started off as a phys- exercise physiology major actually and then moved into psychology and started to learn so much more about all of the stuff that that you don't really hear about. It doesn't make it into sort of self-help books or the common language of psychology, but it's, it's stuck in the academic journals. Mm-hmm. And I just found this really fascinating and, and, and on and on. And, and for me, psychology, you know, it's interesting because in sports science, as you know, whenever you see sports science programs and they think about the the determinants of success and they think of it a bit like that, you know, trivial pursuit pie, you've got mm-hmm. the biomechanics, nutrition and psychology, all the sequence. And, and to me, that was always odd because psychology, I never see it as, oh, and, that, and then you do the psychology work and then you go back to this because psychology is a little bit like, um, you know, when you go to the optician, is A or B better when they're testing your eyesight? And it's the way that we look at everything, the way that we our relationship with food and how mm-hmm. we eat is shaped by our psychology mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and on and on. So really, psychology is a lens through which we look at all these other things and it affects all these other things and our relationship with them. So for me, it became such a central part of, of thriving uh, and um and trying to be better at what you do. And so that's why I think I fell in love with it. What a great response. I love that. You know, when, when I had Dr. Tommy Wood on, and he might be stealing your quote here when he, and I don't, he might've referenced it, but he, he said, you know, what you think has a direct impact on your physiology. And it's, yeah. it's that quote that I've just, I've just kept that in my back pocket. <laughs> I think I've referenced it probably a hundred times in 180 episodes or whatever I'm up to, because I just think it's just so powerful. And it goes to what you're saying. It, it, it impacts 
everything. It really does. And in fact, even in the last 10 years, and psychology has had a major, had quite a few paradigm shifts because of neuroscience, right? And this is sort of more like the, mm. the biological, neurological study of the brain and its processes. And that's influenced the, the, the psycho psychological models. And so and now um, many neuroscientists and some psychologists, me included, don't really think of the mind and body as separate. They're really mm -hmm. like braided rope, right? They're one and the same thing. Um, and it, no, no surprise that our physiologic states, whether it's stress, arousal, affects how we think and feel. Mm. And in turn, how we think and feel has a feedback mechanism to our physiology. So ground zero for changing the way you want to think and feel so often starts with physiology, which is a bit of a, you know, a, a paradigm shift for psychology, where it's always the model has been, mm -hmm. you know, if you can change how you think, you can influence how you feel, and then you'll act differently. And the physiological part was always considered that, oh, that's, that's a separate domain. And they're really not. They're one and the, they're one and the part of the same thing. Well, you can feel it. I mean, you can, and when you actually get down to basics, you can actually feel the changes in your body when you think certain ways. And if you can get better at managing the way you think and the way that you, you take information and process it quickly, you can f you know, affect it very quickly. I do have a question for you, though. You, you mentioned you, know, you, you had some ability when you did all the tests. Did you ever come to a conclusion of what you were missing on the... <laughs> Psychologically. <laughs> um, I, I think that, I, I mean, I've had a fairly, um, not unusual uh, history, but uh, a different one than most of the peers I had at school. I grew up in Africa and mm. in, you know, not really seeing a television or people the same skin color as me until I was like 11 or 12. And so I, uh, I grew up in an environment that was, and, and the things that we did and played and interacted and cultural norms were very different. And this is in the seventies, of course, but, um, so I think that in many ways I struggled when we moved back to the UK to find my place. I looked and sounded British, but I really had not that much affinity for it then. I mean, I couldn't even, well, I probably could have drawn what Britain looked like. I could draw Zambia where I grew up uh, intimately. And so my relationship with that, and, and I got bullied a little bit because I sounded a bit different. And I think that really shaped how I turned out and how I became my strong need for social approval, which is my uh, own sort of heart of darkness, our screenwriter's term there. Mate, I'm uh, not, I'm, there's many of us that have that, by the way. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I know. I'm sure it <laughs> lots of people do. Yeah. But it does shape you, right? The things that you do and how you look at the world and, and, and the types of things you do. And, mm. uh, and one of uh, the biggest, of course, is your relationship with failure. Mm. And so knowing how that I could, and sport is a failure-based business, uh, uh, usually, a unless you change your relationship. Business. I've never heard it framed that oh, way. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, right. So it's uh, everyone. And um, the funny thing is in sports psychology, working across not just from, you know, uh, uh, um, newbies who are just trying to do their first 5k right through to Olympic champions is that there's quite, there's often a lot of similarities, mindset or, or worries or concerns mm. about the things that you want to protect and how you want to be seen. And, and, um, and that really was a bit of a, a game changer um, for me as well, recognizing, well, hang on a minute, maybe it isn't just me, but you're still, you're the one that has to live in your own body and mm -hmm. deal with all the things. And you soon get back into those old patterns that thinking everyone is thinking about you, judging you, commenting on you, and they're really not most of the time, right? Mm -hmm. That's the thing. And that's really about our relationship, about judgment and how we judge ourselves and how we think other people are judging us. <laughs> mm -hmm. you, you worry about what people are saying about you and then you worry, then you don't worry about 
what they're saying. And then you get to your 50s and 60s and you realise nobody was even thinking about you ever. <laughs> I know, right? And it's like... I know. It's, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? And that's the funny thing is, is as you, as you age and you get to, you sort of grow into yourself psychologically and you realise that it's often too late physiologically to have the time over, the do-over, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, oh I, my God, do only I, I knew that then. And, and it's, you've only got to talk about... So tell me, uh, we, we are, when I speak to athletes and who, who do have very, you know, uh, issues with self-judgment mm. and failure, is that you often, you know, if you ask them about, you know, friends of theirs or people they know on the scene, racing scene, and and you ask them about, so tell me about, you know, what their confidence, their, their view of what these other people, their competitors are confident, and they, and they don't, like, well, I don't know, maybe, yeah, and, that, and then you get a sense of the flippancy or the tr- or the or the superficiality with which we look at other people or oh, yeah. or do a try and do a deep dive into other people's heads they're doing the same to you yes. exactly not at all yes. so it becomes one of those things one of my one of my sort of if i could have a magic wand um one of the things I would love to be able to do is to say, you know, especially at the start of races, is if you could just have a little thought bubbles that would percolate up oh, in the air yes. above people's heads about what's <laughs> as you could read people's minds, you would be shocked, yeah. uh, right? Oh, and yeah. I would say, and comforted. Yes. Uh, it would be amazing. And then this is, you know, comes back to one of the cornerstones uh, of uh, about relationships with failure is about vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And uh, we all love and bond with other people's vulnerability, yet we are so paranoid about showing it, mm-hmm. which is the paradox, right? We all want to portray we're strong, we're confident, or we do this, we do that. But, but really, the way to have long-lasting, trusting, you know, supporting relationships is to be vulnerable and show people your weaknesses and talk about your weaknesses. Mm. And, uh, and then you'll find that the, the, the ogres don't come out of the, of the caves and start taunting you and bullying you. They're actually really compassionate to you. They're on your side. Um, Everybody's oh got God. the same. Everybody's dealing with the same, right? I mean, I know, I know exactly. One of the favorite things I've had on this show is being able to speak openly about the fact that I felt like I was an insecure teenager and insecure kid but the ability, what I was able to do is because I recognized that as an insecurity pretty early on mm-hmm. is take ownership of it and, and decide to say, I'm going to use that insecurity as a fuel, a fuel mm-hmm. to be better and do better every single day, right? And, and I think that that comes down to what you're saying. If you can be open with your vulnerabilities, at least to yourself, even if you don't want to share it with others, but be, understand them take ownership and use them as fuel. And, and the other thing I want to, you know, I was thinking about you. But where did that come from for you though? Because that's quite unusual as a young person to make oh, that. Oh, I wasn't that young when I got, I still, oh. <laughs> it, took me, it took me to my mid thirties. Yeah, I, I was 47. When <laughs> exactly. I was last one. No, I think, yeah. I think for me, it was meeting Laura, my wife. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was finding a partner that I could be a hundred percent myself with um, yeah. and never feel judged. And so that was in 2000. And if you look at my career, the 10 years prior to that were reasonable, but there was a lot of, um, you know, I was all over the place, to be honest. And I wasn't <laughs> loving my job because I was just so nervous and I judgmental and self-doubt. And, but I think there's, um, to your point earlier, I think having the combination of the consistent physical behavior, so my preparation mm-hmm. became very good, but then also combine that with the, the emotional and mental growth that I got through that 2000 or 2005 type period, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. when my winning score went right through the roof because I just started taking ownership of who I was. Um, yeah. But I, to, yeah, I think having a partner was massive for that. Um, yeah, that's huge. 
Yeah, but I wouldn't say, mate, I still got a long way to go, by the way. When I, when I mention these things, I also want to have a caveat that, look, I, I'm, I, I still often, you know, self-doubt and struggle, and, yeah. you know, wondering what I'm doing. I'm in a tech startup business with the most brilliant minds I've seen and been around. And I'm like, shit, what am I doing here? And you're constantly going, well, just keep turning up and play the game the best you can. You know, and Isn't it funny though? I mean, imposter syndrome or feeling like mm-hmm. a bit of a fraud or feeling like you're going to be discovered or being that yeah. everyone is smarter or more competent than you. And obviously there's a, there's a, a section of society, particularly narcissists who don't think that, but the majority of us do. Mm. And, and the, the, the more people I speak to either personally or professionally, when you really, cause I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in the weeds of people's heads, right. Uh, <laughs> on a daily basis where I was certainly before mm-hmm. I moved into screen writing and you learn that no one has their shit together really mm-hmm. and and not just that no one has their shit together maybe the human condition uh, is that no one will ever nor should have their shit together we're all trying to figure stuff out as we go along and we spend so much time and money and therapy trying to reach this sort of magical nirvana state where you're strong and you know the the sort of the looking i'm strong i'm confident i'm beautiful and you know in the mirror and you you believe that inside and you're portraying that but that's a total myth mm-hmm. uh, again unless you have a clinical disorder <laughs> but yeah, um yeah people don't they they're constantly plagued by self-doubt and that's the human condition where you understand a bit of evolutionary psychology and evolutionary biology about our drives to be part of a tribe and the in them and using and stuff so it's it's a natural human drive to want to try and fit in was that the you know was that the inspiration behind your book the brave athlete. Well, uh, not not so much the that specific thing, but I think that after coaching, because Leslie and I uh, co-coach uh, athletes. Leslie mm. obviously doing most of the physical stuff, but mental. You know, again, back to my first point about psychology. Look through everything through a psychological lens. Is that yeah? Listening to how athletes talked about their performances and the things, I found myself it's almost like cutting and pasting the same advice mm. for people about these sorts of things. I thought maybe maybe instead of doing this, like we should write a book about it. But we wanted to have a book that was, because Leslie's experience with sports psychology or sports science in general was, was you know, the, the sports science coaching uh, boom in the 90s, but certainly in the UK, was sort of the sports science bean counters, right? They they didn't really have much of a bedside manner, and you you got treated like a, a spreadsheet or an email address and or a data point. And and in and in psychology, when you're learning or training, most of your work is sort of textbook based. Yeah, you have case studies and, and internships, but the majority of it's psychological theory based. And 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 when you're out in the wild with real humans, a lot of that stuff just doesn't fly. I mean, I, I think in theory it works, but uh, it makes sense. But you have to sort of mold your your style a little bit. And I think that really became marrying a professional athlete, peeking behind the curtain of all of the insecurities and the vulnerabilities was really comforting. And it changed me as a psychologist, certainly about how to help other athletes. So that was really, really uh, a big sort of moment in my professional career, marrying a professional yeah. athlete. <laughs> you, get, you get to be right deep inside, right? It's like, it's not the one hour a week or whatever, you know, you'd normally get in a therapy session. It's kind of like really peeping behind, peeking behind the curtains. And I kind of feel like that's what Laura is for me. She's like my, my pocket psychologist, my pocket chiropractor. She's basically peeking behind, you know, the, the, this guy that's trying to take on the world and is, 
like I said earlier, trying to just push me back in the ring. Um, mm-hmm. But I think if you ask Laura, you and Laura could probably have a great conversation about trying to just keep <laughs> these. Ath- I mean, Laura was also an athlete in her own right, but she always mm-hmm. seemed to, she seems to always have her shit together, to be honest. <laughs> I'm like, she's like, and she used to say, Greg, I used to watch you race in the nineties. And I knew if you could just take your head off your shoulders a little bit and just come to your point earlier, come the f- down in the title of the book, you, you'll be set to go. Um, but mate, what I love about the book is you, you break it down and you talk about three brains, the chimp, professor, and computer brains. Mm-hmm. What do you, Tell me about those. Yeah, so, I mean, right off the bat, um, and, and this is the sort of the little science voice in me, is that the huge caveat of this is one of the things that we've learned is that um, – in science is that the brain doesn't actually work in sort of zones, right? There's the left brain, right brain, front, this part of your brain does this, that, but we now know that the brain is really a set of networks and algorithms, right? It's mm. so interconnected. But I think for when you're trying to talk to, you know, real people and give them actionable real solutions, you need metaphors and i'm a huge fan of teaching through metaphor uh even though that you're going to simplify the science and even sort of fudge the science to a certain extent because the goal here for much of this is not to try and say well you know does the prefrontal cortex actually do well okay so let's set that aside most athletes or you know people who aren't trained in psycho don't really care they just say look i just want to feel better i want to have more confidence and Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. when you have metaphors that are sort of somewhat aligned with the biology you do find that there are patterns uh networks and patterns in the brain that do lend themselves towards uh, things like um, sort of how you process emotion, how that you think about those initial reactions to things that mm. aren't the actual when you've had a chance to stop and think about them. So there is a sort of a an organizing, you know, planning, thinking, analyzing part, and there's a reacting emotional part. And where in that, where in the brain that happens is less important now to me than just sort of thinking about it a little bit more functionally. So in that sense, this sort of three system way of thinking about the brain, you've got this fairly analytical um, planning, what they often call executive function in the brain that does seem to happen in the frontal part of your head. So behind your eyes. Mm. That frontal cortex uh, part does seem to be involved, and that has been developing over years and years, to, and is getting more and more. It's getting smaller actually, just because it's getting more efficient. But it's getting more sophisticated and more powerful. And then you've got the parts of our brain, and we call that the professor brain because it's smart and analytical. It's kind of the accountant, as it were, uh, for want of a better word, uh, can always know the right thing to do. And this is the the things that when you find yourself saying, "I should do this," this is the frontal cortex, right? This is the executive function the professor brain mm-hmm. we all know that you should do this but what i actually want to do <laughs> so we we've we we know intuitively that, that we've got two sides of ourselves in that sense but in right in the center of your brain there's something called the limbic system and it's a really a complex pop out the size of a little bit bigger than avocado and it really processes emotions and these you know our fight or flight responses it's the it's the it's the probably the oldest part of our brain and and it's the really it has very simple needs it wants to keep you alive it wants you to procreate uh, or i should say not even that 
part. It just wants you to uh, to have pleasure <laughs> um, and its relationship with those sorts of things. So, so the, these sorts of our these two parts of our brain we call the chimp brain because it does act a little bit impulsively, but it's immensely strong. You can't arm wrestle your chimp brain using your professor brain. So, no amount when you're scared and terrified or nervous, no amount of sort of rational thought seems to work. Um, now there are some caveats to that and there's a whole school of therapy called cognitive behavior therapy that tries to do that and does it well under certain circumstances but under conditions of high stress especially that middle part of your brain that chimp brain is running the show you know it's immensely it's five times stronger five times quicker you know it processes sensory information much much quicker it sets off a cascade of hormones and neurotransmitters to get you ready to run to fight to whatever and that train has already left the station before your your lazy and quite slow executive function part, Professor Brain, has even realized what's going on. And so it is a battle uh, that's going on all the time. And this is what imposter syndrome, or in fact, most of the things that we are unhappy about or that we want to be better at psychologically or from the internal world. I want to feel better. I want. I don't want to feel like this. I want to feel excited, but I'm shit in my pants. This isn't fun. I used to be a sprint hurdler as, as a kid and I gave up eventually because I would just be throwing up before. Right? It was this is not pleasant. Mm. Why is that? And so that relationship between these two parts of our head is 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 at the the heart of almost all of our internal battles, fighting between brain parts of our brain networks and algorithms, uh, uh, elements of our brain that really have competing interests. Um, and then there's obviously another part of our brain we call the computer brain. And actually, the, even this uh, this sort of tripartite structure wasn't even our own. We labeled it that, but a guy called Steve Peters, if you've heard of him, a forensic psychiatrist and who's worked in sport for many years, uh, label this. Lots of people have labeled, you know, lizard brain, elephant brain, elephant rider. You know, there's lots of little labels for this <laughs> that's sort of having this separate structure. Uh, but then there's a part of us that can sort of do things automatically. You know, we can talk about what was on TV last night while we're driving and I'm not really thinking about braking mm. or accelerating or changing gear because I'm doing it automatically. So there is a part of our brain that can kind of run on autopilot. Mm. Uh, and uh, so we call this the computer brain. And so this is filling up our computer brain. Think of it like a bit like a hard drive. As you, the moment you're born, it's really laying down memories and experiences uh, to pull back in to help us make sense of the world with our other two brains. And so when we find ourselves in challenging situations or when we want to get better at something, at the heart of it is trying to manage the relationship between these two things. So when I need to cope with discomfort and pain, how can I just go on autopilot and not think about it? Or what things can I say to myself or do so I don't get down mm -hmm. the rabbit hole of rumination and worry, or I don't get over-emotional when someone cuts me off and I want to get out the car, I just want to keep moving. And how do I suddenly forget just the most basic skills? Why are people running out of, of uh, our transition with their bike helmet still on in the run and, you know, without their number or, you know, these schoolboy errors, schoolboy or schoolgirl errors. And it's because there's sometimes we, when we try and bring things that are on autopilot or should be into, into sort of conscious thought or stress forces us to that, we make these silly mistakes. That's what choking is essentially. That's what a whole host of other things that we just 
can't think straight. We we do a big presentation and we're quite stressed or nervous and we know the information, but yet suddenly your mind goes blank and you can't remember anything. Well, why is that? Mm. So those sorts of things are really helpful for understanding. So the functional part is Okay, if you want to get a, a handle on a wrangling this internal experience, we kind of one need to know that your brain is has different demands to get you away from danger, from harm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also want to do it because I know it's good for me and I should do it. And I do enjoy it after the fact, you know, you can time travel with the professor brain, you can't with the chimp brain and so on. But the, the heart of it is managing those relationships. So a lot of the strategies outside of the physiologic ones really are about the relationship, letting your brain bits, your meat computer, like talk to it, talk to itself and manage itself with some calm. Like, okay, I've got this. Don't worry. I know you're nervous. You know, this is the self-talk part. I know that you're terrified. I know that you don't want to be embarrassed, but don't worry. I've got this. Everything's going to be okay. The sun is still going to shine. You're not going to drown. No one's going to die. <laughs> so having, managing that and what strategies are the most effective for having that, managing that relationship in real time is the, is the challenge. Oh, well, that's what we're going to have to talk about right now. I mean, these strategies, because, you know, as you've been, that was fantastic, by the way, a really great description. And I, and I love the way you tell a story. So now it sticks. I'm somebody that has to listen to a story to actually understand. (laughs) And you did a great job. So when you think about this, you know, the computer brain, the autopilot, is that possible to train it up in a way for most things that you can be, like, if you keep doing something routine habit, you know, we often talk about that, that you, you can override the sympathetic brain, if you want to call it, or the limbic system, as you you said, it, can you make that computer brain more powerful in a way? I don't know if I'm using the right terminology, but... Yeah, no, no, you can. In fact, you can start to automate certain things. And anybody who's been an endurance athlete knows this, right? You speak to someone who's just started out and you're talking about tra- oh god spending and more than 45 minutes or 30 minutes on the stationary train oh my god how do you do that or what do you you know and then after a while you're you've done it for so many years you learn your brain and your body knows how to cope with it you know what's coming you learn some little tricks and strategies along the way to help it so you can use some distraction of course that's the easiest way for the uh, to get into autopilot, whether it's uh, sort of watching movies or listening to podcasts while you're doing difficult things, or just simple things like counting to yourself or singing a, a sort of a very rote, repetitive chorus of a song in your own head, is a great way to get into computer brain mode. So yes, there are lots of things that you can do, but the, the essence of of turning something into into an autopilot or a habit or, or sort of not thinking, overthinking it, is one having the skill, the thing that you're trying to do, be practiced. So you've already got the the skill. You've done it over and over mm. and over again. And your brain will naturally, the more you do something, your brain wants to put it into a computer brain mm. oversight or mode. Because, listen, if we make so many decisions every day, and, the, the you know, even though it's a bit of a, a myth that we make, what is it, 35,000 decisions a day or something, but it's a lot, right? And most of those, and your brain would melt down and start fuming, uh, 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 smoking <laughs> if it had to actually think about every little thing. So we automate it. That's your brain's way of like giving an easy life uh, in internal world, right? So anything with practice over time will eventually become automated, assuming there's not too much reliance on the professor brain. If I'm having to do calculus, I can't often do that in my computer brain. Some people can. 
can, you know, they can just do it rote, but, but most people will struggle because it needs executive functions to be able to do it. But for things like tolerance of discomfort, uh, mm. pushing through or getting through hard times or, or not worrying about things, absolutely you can. And, and, and what we do know about habit formation, the neuroscience of habit formation now tells us that it's not about how many times you do something, uh, also the number of times, or sorry, I, I rephrase, it's not how long it takes, it's how many repetitions. So people say, oh, it takes three months to, for it to be a habit or six months. That's not true at all. In fact, the science has disproven that. What does show is that it's the frequency with which you do things that's important. So this is why if you want to make something like exercise a habit or something that's you don't really enjoy a habit, like the parts of writing that you do, I wake up and I just don't want to write, I'm not feeling creative, I've got to make it a habit. So you set these tiny goals. I'm just going to do 10 minutes a day. Same for exercise, same for writing. Small, manageable, repetitive things where you're removing the barriers to doing them is the way that you actually, the kind of the little entryway or the portal to turn those things into into habits. I, lo- I love looking at the habit formation in small micro doses too, because I think mm-hmm. we often hear people go, yeah, I'm going to start something three times a week. I'm going to do, you know, 30 minutes of, I'm like, whoa, 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 back it down. Smaller little goals, make it mm-hmm. habitual. What are the strategies then? You know, I, I'm thinking about it when, especially when we're, we get hit that, fight or flight, the sympathetic Mm -hmm. nervous system. What can we do when we hit, when we're in that state? Yeah, so there's there's quite a lot actually. And the ones that I'm really interested in, obviously evidence-based strategies, but even then when there isn't scientific evidence for saying, okay, I want you to, you know, look in the mirror and say this to yourself and jump up and down and say the national anthem backwards or whatever it is, you know, the new thing of the day that the (laughs) self-help guru. Some of those things, um, just because there isn't evidence here, doesn't mean they don't work or they're not effective. Uh, we just might not have studied them enough yet. But if there's some sort of biological underlying reason or pathway that might explain it, that's usually good enough for me to start using it with athletes. So I don't need a randomized controlled trial uh, necessarily to say, okay, if you breathe like this and say this to yourself and, you know, start tapping your thumbs. And- I, isn't it 700 minus seven? And you just got to keep <laughs> going down. I'm actually pretty good at it, by the way. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> I've done it that um, many times. <laughs> yeah, oh, oh, in terms of uh, what, discomfort? Or? Well, well, no, just trying to get yourself to neutral, trying to calm yourself oh, yeah, down. Yeah, middle gear, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there's a number of ways, and, it, and it's, it's actually very different. So here's the, here's the interesting thing about your uh, the relationship between the two brains. So your, your limbic system, your chimp brain, whilst it is the, you know, a screaming tantruming toddler in a grocery store supermarket um which it will you can't you know you have to bribe them distract them that's the way our brain is but they also feel it feels so intensely so music for example and the role of music for our chimp music is chimp porn right it really is uh porn is also porn to the chimp but but (laughs) but 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 music uh, is and you can really uh, influence. So, so, and, and it's funny now. This is talking about the crossover between sports psychology or performance psychology and screenwriting. Is that when you watch a good movie and there's a great soundtrack or mm. a great score, it can change the experience for you. The soundtrack of a movie can often make the movie without you even realizing it. I loved it. This is what you know. There's so many. I know we're kind of switching into different different disciplines here, but but the point 
point is that the that your limbic system, your chimp brain, you've kind of got to tease it, give it a bit of foreplay, mm. give it what it wants, but not too much. Distract it. Distraction is key. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So yeah. having having good playlists or having good soundtracks are great ways mm. of just getting your chimp brain calm to not have it tantrum and getting it sort of we often talk about exercising your chimp you know it needs to if it needs an outburst if it needs to tell you that it's terrified and scared the more you try and shut it down and say no i've got this you know no i'm good i'm confident i'm kind of you know the mantras over and over they often don't work because this part of your brain has been given biochemical powers to force you to listen to it because its primary goal is to keep you alive yeah so it's really tough so you've got to really use some sort of cloak and dagger tactics with it um, uh, and so for some people, that's music. For some people, it might just be talking a lot. You know, it's funny because when people get nervous, some people withdraw and get quiet. Some people become chatterboxes. These are all windows to how their chimp brain is trying to naturally self-regulate. And so when you learn that, uh, well, the difficulty is when you're around someone who is the opposite, right? I need I need quiet. That person's a chatterbox. So you're making me anxious and they're <laughs> calming down. And then I'm not responding to them. So they think that you're pissed off with them. So that affects them. So it's this in compatibility with how you're trying to self-regulate um so for me reading actually is a way that i can self-regulate a lot but music as well leslie's all about music that's the one way that she self-regulates uh, a lot and through repetitive exercise of course as well and when i say repetitive i don't just mean you know over and over again i'm talking about exercises that have a sort of a closed skill cycling and running right it's the same little pattern repeated oh it's almost like right, right. hypnotic mm. so those sorts of things why meditation can help as well so yeah so trying to manage that well by learning what works for you uh is really helpful so you and a lot of the time when you ask people so what works for you, they don't really know so you say well tell me about some of your great uh, performances or when everything went well uh, or and they said well if they haven't some of them haven't had any go well so okay tell me about a time in your life that you just remember this was great oh I was on holiday with my family and I was with water skiing or whatever 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 and so you're trying to unpack the elements that created that feeling of of sort of of, of stillness of calmness of of confidence or I could do anything and and then that's a little entry point to then trying to know which strategies might work for them versus somebody else. A quick mini break to tell you about any question, the ultimate knowledge sharing platform. You can listen to thousands of the world's greatest experts share their content. You can also ask them any questions. Go check it out, anyquestion.com forward slash Greg Bennett. That's anyquestion.com forward slash Greg Bennett. And you can download it on iOS or Android. I think all of this is fascinating and I'm kind of thinking about the moments I had in my life personally and I know others are experiencing it, listeners, you know, when you, you've packed up your transition and, and you're making your way over to the start line and, you know, it's 20 minutes to race start and the national anthem's going and, and, and you're in this heightened state of arousal, right? It's like uh, the helicopter's above and, you know, you have these moments like, okay, I have to win this race or whatever it means to you mm-hmm. to win. But, you know, and it's like this... What advice do you have for people yeah. that feel overwhelmed in that? that yeah. You know, yeah. What are some of the tools? So, so the first thing would be, on a very general sense, is a present focus. Being in the here and now. not yeah. what, And your professor brain can time travel. It's the only part of our brain that can. In fact, we <laughs> think we might be the only mammal that can do that. Wow. 
we can dream forward, we can reminisce, but we can think about all of the things that uh, could, should, maybe happen. Um, and it gets us into tremendous difficulties and problems. It's the, it's the sort of the, the kryptonite of the athlete is mentally time traveling to outcomes that you have no control over or may or may not happen. So it's really staying present. So then this comes back to controlling physiology. So the number one thing, and so the model that I teach and I use for my athletes is if you really think about the five core, your central, your brain and central nervous system is really running and, and, and really what you think and feel is an, what we call an emergent property of your physiology. If you're stressed and nervous, you're likely to have your, your, the, the outside world or seem to be moving at a much faster rate. You'll feel rushed. Mm-hmm. You'll forget things <laughs> uh, because of how the memory works under those sorts of things. So we need to try and calm our physiology so that the, the techniques that we then do try and use have a much better chance of happen of working so calming your physiology so one of the one of the the quickest and best and the, and the credit for this goes to a number of scientists but the person who's really talked about this a lot is andrew huberman if you've seen mm-hmm. or heard of, of course andrew huberman mm-hmm. uh stanford uh, neuroscientist the physiologic sigh breath sigh s-i-g-h breath if you've heard of this before or cyclic breathing um is a fantastic way of calming down our nervous system within 15 seconds it's quick we should be teaching you know elementary school children this uh from a very early age and the curious thing about breathing because everyone who's had some sense of meditation or try they know that you know oh yes i have to breathe and box breathing and all these other sorts of breathing why about breath is it just trying to trick my brain? Well, actually, no, there are some connections between, for example, our diaphragm, uh, that big band of muscle at the bottom of our mm-hmm. uh, thoracic um, uh, area is a phrenic nerve that goes to a neurons in our brain that control anxiety and stress. And that communicates with our amygdala and all the stress centers. So there's these connections between automatic processes that we can turn into some control so we can control our breathing it's very hard to control your heart rate or your pancreas or your spleen but you can actually control your breath and because your breath and how you breathe the pattern of your breathing has a huge impact on how you think and feel and vice versa you can sort of use it as a kind of a hack with a small h and so so one of those is a phrenic, there's a philosophical side breath. And what this means is that you, you breathe in through your nose twice, one on top of the other. This is where video would help, I suppose. So it's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. if you heard that. So what you're doing there, uh, I'll talk through the breath about why this works. So obviously when you're breathing in, you've got these little alveoli sacs in your lungs and they inflate and some of them sort of like partially inflate. Some of them are like all deformed or muted. Some of them don't inflate at all. And there's a surface tension to them as well. So just like when you're blowing up a balloon, you have to kind of break that surface tension and it suddenly inflates, you know, mm-hmm. after you harder than it gets easier to breathe well the alveoli in our lungs are a little bit similar as well so you're actually when you actually take one breath on top of another in in uh, uh inhale on top of another you get a much better expanded uh inhalation and of course we know that not just a lot of things are happening in the capillary beds around that about all the stuff that's being transported, it comes come outside in oxygen, but also just about having good oxygenation. So having two uh, internal breaths through your nose, you're holding it for the amount of time that you've breathed in for those two in uh, nasal inhales. And then you're breathing out through your mouth for double the length of the inhale. So this is what it sounds like. I almost said it looks like. It's what it sounds like. <sighs> 
And that physiologic side breath, now we know, is connecting breath patterns, the diaphragm, the pressure on your heart, how, the, how your heart shrinks and expands with the pressure in your chest cavity with these inhalations and exhalations, sending messages to neurons at the top of our brainstem that are communicating with our amygdala. and that. So, so there's a whole host of biological, real, tangible things that are happening when you breathe in this pattern that are helping our sympathetic nervous system sort of just like... You, you're actually, you're parasympathetic. You're pumping the brakes a little bit on those adrenaline, mm. the, the gas pedal, the, parasy- the the sympathetic nervous system. So when you breathe in this pattern like this, so when, it, in fact, there's a general rule for breathe breath work uh, as, as, a, as a sort of an overarching sort of um, way of thinking about it. When you focus on exhalation in a breath, my that was an exhalation-focused breath because I'm breathing out for twice as long. It's activating more parasympathetic, calming uh, uh, neural responses. When you focus on inhalation, so this like Wim Hof, Lamar's like, you know, a lot of that, you're actually increasing adrenaline and cortisol. You're increasing activation. So that can make you either anxious or nervous, or I just need more motivation. I need to get out of bed. I'm struggling. Put the, you know, whatever. I need to see in the snooze. You want to do sharp, in quick inhalations. But when I want to calm down, I want to make it, exhalation focus so the exhalation is a lot longer than the inhale function so it's a great strategy for calming down in the moment and so you only need to do it like two or three times after about two or three times you don't get any more benefit but it's the quickest way to calm your nervous and your brain and central nervous system down uh, that you can and then lo and behold you start your field of vision changes the likelihood of making these little stupid errors the schoolboy mistakes or schoolgirl mistakes that we talked about earlier start to uh, uh reduce the likelihood of that happening you can see a bit more clearly because your field of vision you're not foveating you uh, as we say in neuroscience is that you 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 get kind of tunnel vision your na- your attention to field narrows when cortisol and stress is up so i want to be in a calm centered present place and that's the easiest and quickest way to get in it doing that little breath pattern. Oh, that is fascinating. It is, I have never heard it explained that way. Um, and, the, and the different verse, inhalation versus uh, escalation. Es- no. I think it's absolutely fantastic. And it's something that I, I want to be able to use. And then is, is there a bit of a, that's almost a physiological side. Mm-hmm. Is there then a, you know, do you preach word affirmations or anything to sort of, my wife was always very good at this. I'd be like, oh, you know, are you feeling, you know, stressed before the, the race or nervous? You say, are you feeling nervous? And she turned to me always cool as a cucumber, be like, no, I'm excited. Mm-hmm. Right? I they're, know, not funny? They're the two exact same things. But, I know, but I know. This is, this is like the, yeah. I know, I know. And it's funny because dopamine and we can talk about dopamine if, if you wish, but, yeah. but as a neurotransmitter, in the presence of adrenaline and stress or, or sort of that cortisol, that stress response, when there's dopamine present as well, it feels like excitement. Yeah. But when it's not present, it feels like anxiety. So this is why some people ah. love roller coasters and scary movies and other people hate them. It's when you add a different neurotransmitter, even though it's they're all there all the time, that's the sort of the small print. Yeah. But in a, in, a, in a metaphorical, broad nutshell sense, it's that when you in in uh, introduce 
sort of uh, neurotransmitters or you try and like get microdosed with dopamine, like having a laugh, like having cracking a joke under stress yeah. brings in their dop- dopaminergic response. Ah. It makes everything feel better. It's an, actually it's an adrenaline antagonist as well. So, so any chance you can get to do that, that's why then listening to music, some people like to have self-affirmations or self-mantras. It really doesn't so much uh, matter what the thing is. Uh, but the key thing, and this is a really interesting little feature when they've tried to study so what are the things that i should be saying to myself when i'm trying to get ready for a performance and uh, or what you know what should i be thinking about it the, the evidence suggests that it's not so much what you should be thinking that's what you shouldn't be thinking about in other words mm. maybe it doesn't matter too much whether i'm saying you know uh, i've got my little mantra that i'm saying to myself all that means is that you're not doing the tendency to time travel you're not thinking about the oh my god so and so is here i didn't know she was going to be here oh my god that great i'm already now racing for second or whatever you know i'm not going down that line so you're kind of running interference Mm. on some of these other things that we know impact performance in a negative way so i'm reluctant to sort of say okay here's the magical phrase that you say to yourself the essence is get your physiology in a calm state using breath work which is uh, a a huge uh, part the other thing then might be to say have a soundtrack listen to something that helps your chimp brain get into that mode it might be a it might be a sort of a german techno if you're leslie it might be you know (laughs) classical concerto or whatever it doesn't matter what it is but it's kind of in tune with that sense of yourself that stops you worrying forward backwards what could or should it is only about being in that moment so that's really the heart of it and that's a battle it's really you have to practice it to be able to do it well so um i would say uh if you don't if you're if you're just trying to do this oh my god i'm listening to this podcast i'm gonna try this this race on saturday and oh my god it didn't really work or it worked for a little bit that isn't of course it doesn't it's like saying well i'm gonna teach you topspin tennis serve today and i want you to use it in a match on saturday it's like wait what I've, I've only just figured out that i need to change my grip and so you can't you've got to practice it over time in increasingly more stressful situations so that's one that's one element i guess of learning how to cope with high stakes high pressure moments and knowing i will say that coming back to the physiology piece your your eyes and your ears uh also smell and taste as well and a whole bunch of other sort of senses that are coming in is bombarding your nervous system with saying look at me think about me i'm over here you really should think about that right we get assaulted by light sounds all the time and this is happening at lightning speeds before your brain can even process it right so what we need to do is uh what the perception of those senses what we shine our flashlight our torch on which of those things i should be focusing on is really important so the psychological strills are really less about control yes you can control your ears and your eyes you know your michael phelps your headphones and the hoodie and the glasses trying to limit the sensory input which is everyone should be doing anyway uh but then what you decide to shine the light on so in other words if i am noticing something or i see something or i get angry at something i'm racked here or someone's taking my spot or in 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 a try in a transition sense or it can be anything things that aren't going right your senses are going to be screaming at you to go down a little rabbit hole And you've got to resist those at all costs. You've got to try and keep back on a particular focus that's keeping you in the present. So that's why it it helps if, for example, you've learned 
the way to control your ears and your eyes. And then you've got some little thing. It might be a memory or a great race that you've had in the past or one that we teach our athletes is you don't have to feel good to have a good race. Uh, So to try and separate how I feel now versus how I'm going to do, those two things are often completely independent, right? Some of our best races have been when I felt I had the flu the night before (laughs) or I got up and this was hurt and that wasn't working. And, And so once you start to get into that mindset, the of uh, nothing really matters what's happened to me, how I woke up this morning, what I'm feeling, what will be, will be. If I can just focus on the process, and this is all coming back to present presentism, if, if that's a, a phrase in this context, of being in the moment is about what do I need to do in the next one minute to be the best version of myself? You could think of the dream performance by your dream athlete in the dream circumstances. What would they do in this one next minute that's right in front of me? What would they do? And so you can help, you can draw on other people's influences, you can draw on memories that you've got, you can talk to yourself. It doesn't really matter. I'm just trying to keep myself in this moment and only focus on what's the best version of myself in this moment. What would they do in this moment? And so that really becomes practice. It becomes preparation, like knowing when you're in this situation, what do you think is going to happen? Okay, so you've got this. You're walking through, uh, take Leslie at the World Championships. She's walking through. We're trying to think of every scenario that could derail her, thinking, uh, uh, you know, a goggle snap as she's walking down to the beach. Uh, she forgets this or she stubs her toe or her swim cord snap or whatever. What would you do then? You've got to have contingency plans for them. And once you've got all these contingency plans for them, it frees your brain up a little bit to stop worrying because no matter what gets thrown at me, I've got a little plan to help get through it. And then I can get back to focusing on the warm up, the blah, 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 all the phases of how I can be the best version of myself in that moment. And that's really the essence of it. That was fantastic, mate. I, I'm, jo- I'm jotting down notes here as much for myself <laughs> more than anything. And these days it's not so much about start lines in races, but it's more about yeah, yeah, giving yeah. presentations and, you yeah, know, sure. speaking engagements that I do. And, and I, I love them and I hate them. You know, I, I, like, exactly. I like doing well, speaking. Do for presentations and stuff, physiologic sigh breathing, cyclic sigh breathing, yeah is it's called i should say s-i-g-h it's called sigh breathing is because when we sigh you know physiologically when something is just this big that's just happened and it's a natural mammal or other animals do it as well after they've eaten or had sex we do it in our sleep we often do it when we you know we just kind of something then when we do that physiologically it's mother nature's neural inbuilt mechanism for calming down and saying to our brain it's okay it's over everything's going to be fine so we're all we're doing is we're proactively using that side oh that mechanism by uh doing this little uh, uh, uh breath pattern so it's great for just about to walk onto stage do that under your breath fantastic work it really works oh mate i they, these tools and strategies you've just talked about I'm already like, now I'm excited about, okay, I'm ready. I've got a few more because you just need to have a few of these tools that then you can go practice to your point early. You know, it's about preparation, you know, but the breathing, the music, get yourself to neutral. I love when you said, you know, it's not what, don't be thinking about what I should be thinking about. Think about what you should not be thinking about and get that sorted and, and then be present. Just be present exactly. in this there's one another, There's another yeah. quick, great physiologic tool as well for calming that stress response. Mm. It's called. It's got a really awkward sounding name called self-generated optic flow. It's neuroscience, so it's awful. But the, the bottom line is that, that what our eyes focus on, the pattern of how our eyes track, 
is really important because the back of your eyeballs, there's a little ret- called the neural retina. It's about the width of a credit card on the back of your eyeballs, indistinguishable from brain tissue. Your eyeballs pop out at the end of your first trimester out of our skull. Uh, so they originally they were part of our brain. And they're actually communicating with these stress, resp- these stress neural pathways, the amygdala and all these fight or flight response pathways in the brain uh, at without us even knowing it. And what visual neuroscientists have discovered is that when you start to track your eyesight left to right or right to left, basically um, a parallel to the horizon and on the horizon, we activate these calming parasympathetic responses. No uh, so when you're walking through time and space, so your eyes can sense that the, your field of vision is moving past you, you're just walking or running, and you're tracking your eyes across the horizon, left to right, right to left, you're activating these neural pathways to calm down. But what do we do when we get stressed or nervous? We narrow our attention, we go into mm. our phones, we try and go on a TikTok, you know, distraction or whatever. It's often or we're all we're exercising inside on a on a treadmill or we're looking at a screen. It's making the problem worse. So when you can, if you're in those moments uh, just before a presentation and you have a moment to just kind of got five minutes, what should I do? And you're in a hotel about to give a presentation, I would be trying to get outside, having a little walk, even if it's just backwards and forwards 50 yards back scanning the horizon and doing my physiologic side breathing that would be the quickest way physiologically to, to calm down these are all evidence-based strategies these isn't sort of hoodoo voodoo in fact i will say the, the eye tracking part now has been built into one of the foremost and most encouraging treatments for ptsd it's called emdr therapy eye movement desensitization reprocessing therapy and it's this notion that when your eyes start tracking left to right on the horizon we are instantly put into a calmer state and we can talk about things that are stressful without being limbic chimp brain activated or agitated as much. It's really, really helpful. Fascinating. Thank you so much, mate. <laughs> this is really, really incredible. I'm going to have to just keep having you get back every six months on the show if, 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 um, for my own therapy. This is, That's uh, right. I'm, I'm kind of sitting here going, man, if I'd had Simon in my corner for the 25 years of my racing career, it would have been, a, would have been really helpful. <laughs> um, how many athletes are you actually working with beyond Leslie? Have you worked, uh, yeah, you well, obviously we're winding down uh, yeah, the psych, yeah. my psych uh, stuff. So we coach uh, uh, triathletes. We've, we've got about 25 at the moment, but yeah. we... Yeah. But I, I have my own sideline of athletes who have their own coaches. They just come to me for psychology. I'm winding that down just because of screenwriting of and film now. But uh, yeah, so it's the, these are the sorts of things that you're talking about. I want to talk about that before I let you go. I know I've kept you for for a while, but I, I want to talk about it and, and shift the gear into the screenwriting. Um, and just tell me, you know, that process and some of the, the obstacles and challenges you faced during that. I know Leslie gave me a bit of a rundown, um, but I'd love to hear it from your point of view. So it's funny because, you know, as an academic, uh, you're a writer, really. Uh, you're just a science writer. You're writing grants, you're writing publications, you're writing, you know, mm. you're reading and writing papers and so on. And so you you write for a living, essentially. Um, and I've always liked creative storytelling, but never creative writing. I never thought of myself as, as a creative writer. And then when we started with your quiet journey and Leslie with her first writing partner was struggling with this draft of the script and they asked if I would sort of try and help out and and one of the things that after spending so many times uh, so much of my life professional life working with athletes or working with just people who are in 
you know, what we call achievement situations. Not all of my clients are athletes. Um, you find that what one of your jobs is understanding subtext. You tell me this, but is that what you yeah. actually think and feel? Oh, I love it. And so, right. So that's what you're trying to get the bottom of. Tell yeah. me, you know, you're trying to get the truth out of someone. What was really, I want a front row seat to your head, not just a front row seat to your mouth. So I, I, <laughs> when you do this in screenwriting and one of the arts of, of good, uh, certainly dialogue and character is about subtext, right? It's about what people say versus what they actually mean. Mm. And so that always came quite naturally to me, uh, not naturally, because I've been doing it, trained in it and so on. So when I started to help out the dialogue piece and they would say this and how they would respond was just like, well, that's what they would say. And they, and so that became how I sort of segued into screenwriting because I, that came fairly, I didn't have any training in, in story architecture or how narratives, uh, stories unfold, but I've since taken some classes on that and Leslie is trained on that. So that's why our partnership works so well in screenwriting. Uh, And I just love it. It's, uh, you know, storytelling is the way that we uh, sort of for for millennia have communicated Uh and understood ourselves, understood the world. Uh And it became a way that you can really shift shift belief patterns i really do i think now after all this psychology work maybe it's storytelling is that is that is one of the secrets to, yeah. to changing the way we think about ourselves in the world I, I i think you've absolutely nailed it here i'm going to put on my psychology hat and i'm i'm looking at you and and just this one hour we've spent together one of your greatest strengths is your ability to tell stories to to, <laughs> to learn from and, and it's what i want from this show honestly it's like I, I'm not somebody that likes to interview by going, okay, here's 10 questions, boom, boom, boom. What I want is to just hear your journey and hear a story. And you do that so well. And so it makes perfect sense when you when you think about it, the, the ability for you to tell stories, to understand the human brain and the way we operate. And you almost know what people are going to say next. You know, you're like the AI. Yeah. You're like, yeah, yeah. it's, <laughs> it's, um, is you know after spending years teaching when you when you have to teach undergrad when you have to teach 350 undergrads or 500 undergrads now in the US these academic stadia and some of which are not your majors they're just taking a class you know and you it becomes sort of a form of edutainment as I used to call right. it you know it's like right. and and really learning like executive function professor brain stuff facts and uh, uh, theories and the way into someone the way to make that easier is you talk to their chimp mm-hmm. they think they're in there to get you know, smart and their professor friend they are, but you're really communicating to and storytelling is chimp porn, mm. right? We talk about that. It's mm. the way that your chimp feels. It can relate to emotion. It can relate to wants and desires and needs, which is what storytelling is. Mm. It doesn't relate so much to goals and uh, 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 and facts. It relates to <clears throat> the much more emotional side of it. And so when you pair those two together, you know, facts and knowledge with uh, uh, wants and desires, and you can align them, which is what good teaching really is. That's the essence of, of to me, about really human growth. That's the way that we truly internalize stuff and feel passionate about it. And I think over the years, I learned that rather than you have to, it's a performance in every sense of the word. Mm. And you, if you can get people on board emotionally, 
It makes all the other stuff. Think of all your favorite teachers and professors that you've had in your life. At the essence of it, if you were to dig down, the reason you probably like them is because they they had a way of communicating kind of difficult stuff in a way that made sense to you. And yes. The, yes. The, the really the sort of the, the scientific unearthing of that is they're really doing sort of sort of limbic system, uh, you know, communication. That's what that's what that is. And so if you can do that in story uh, well, uh, it's very, very powerful. Wow. So, you know, you've done that with, with the screenwriting or mm-hmm. quiet on the Western front. Anybody who hasn't seen it, go see it. It's, um, <laughs> it really is an amazing film. Um, what, what are your sort of future projects? Can you share anything yet or is it yeah, all a bit hush-hush? There's a few actually on the, on the cards now, um, some of which are... And we wanted to try and find some lighter material. All Quiet is a pretty oh, dark it's, it's film. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tough watch. It's oh, an important yeah. film, it's a tough watch. But And your chimp doesn't come away necessarily feeling happy, excited, um, or uplifted. But you do feel about, you know, the futility of war mm. and the danger. But, but so we, are, we, we, we want to tell stories. We still really gravitate to stories of human resilience, human it. spirit, how that you make sense of hardship and how you learn through hardship and how you shouldn't, we shouldn't be avoiding suffering and mm. feeling bad mm. uh, and sort of putting us, I'm, some people don't have a choice. I'm not talking about people who are, uh, are in situations where their life is hard and they're suffering. I'm talking about for, for people who are trying to find a, a way to connect uh, with stories that make sense to them, but they've led pretty much, you know, fairly privileged middle-class lifestyles, which many of us have, um, that I think that we tend to avoid suffering. We tend to avoid discomfort. And so I love the idea of of stories that show out of hardship and discomfort, you can actually not just survive it, but you can thrive and be better because of it. So we've got a few stories that are in that vein, one that we're really excited is about um, uh, Ernest Shackleton. Get out. I was about to say that book. I was about to say you should do Endurance. <laughs> I know, that's it. That's, so no that's pro- that might be one of our next films. So oh. we're, we're deep in the weeds uh, of uh, the Ernest Shackleton uh, story now. Oh, if people haven't um, read that, go read it. It's phenomenal, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it really is. I mean, it's yeah. just like mind-blowing. Yeah. What uh, It's funny because when you look at Antarctic explorers, yeah. the ones that some people know about, Scott and Amundsen, mm-hmm. and so, they all have very different personalities and, and all very different styles. You know, you've got the real, tactician the the planning person of amazon and then you've got the sort of the the much more sort of um military hierarchical order of scott and then you've got this visceral emotional charismatic leader that's rough around the edges Mm. of shackleton Mm. and they always say that if you're all these explorers have since said that if you are caught in the ice you want Shackleton uh, with no hope you want Shackleton rather than the other two because they're going to be the ones that really he's a limbic system whisperer right mm. chimp whisperer and that's really what he became as a good leader so those sorts of stories are really interesting we've got a psychological thriller oh. uh, set in the Scottish Highlands that we're really interested wow. in as well yeah. uh, that's kind of a bit weird and scary and stuff so but also has a sort of a fairly beautiful poetic ending so yeah we're, we're, there's no there's no a single genre or type of story but i think at the essence of it it's about human spirit it's about relating because look when we watch these films we're really as anybody as audience we're looking why do we enjoy cinema so much or movies so much is because we're not just we 
you know, we just want to be entertained or distracted is because we're learning how to interact with the world. What would I do in that situation? Mm. Oh, God, I could never be in that situation. What would I? And when you, if you've only got to look at what's popular on YouTube now, it's like a lot of survival stories about, you know, uh, or not just stories about, you know, going into the woods and building, you know, surviving in a cabin and trying to be self-reliant and self-sufficient and not we'd ever want to do that, but we are fascinated with what you would do under those circumstances. So it's like transporting a version of yourself into a new world. So how would I deal with that? So I love those kinds of stories. I always have been interested in them. Mate, that's fantastic. I'm super excited for you both. And I know these these books are in the right hands with you two. Um, <laughs> I, I'm excited about that. I I, that, 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 that book, Endurance, I couldn't put it down. I was exhausted by the end of it. Just like I Quiet on the Western Front, I think people are going to be exhausted. It's just uh, one where you like, by the end, you get one deep breath right at the end. Um, but just, mate, absolutely fantastic. Before I let you go, I do have just mm-hmm. a couple of questions I like to finish sure. with. And, and that is, you know, first one, what would you tell your 18-year-old self? Oh, gosh. Um, I think it would be, as we spoke about at the beginning, it was that no one actually cares about (laughs) what what I mean. Um, And you think that everybody is judging and evaluating you, but the only, the main 99% of the judgment evaluation you get is from your own damn head. And if only you could have, I don't want to swear on your podcast, fewer Fs in your bag right to give and unfortunately age and wisdom gives us that you know i yeah. love the 80 year old grandmother who just doesn't give a <laughs> anymore and sweat you know what i mean i love that but why can't we have a little bit of that when we're younger uh so that i could try things that i would i, I had avoided because i was too scared to do them or so on yeah, yeah i love you know when i first started dating laura very early on in our relationship she turns to me and said greg nobody cares about you and I was like, what? You know, like, does is, that, he, is that supposed to be a pickup line? Oh my God, what? <laughs> but it was like, uh, this is how blunt she can be. She mean it in a, meant it in a very compassionate way. The truth is exactly what you're saying. Nobody cares. People, you yeah. have an issue to your face. They might be like, oh, yeah, I care. But then they turn around the corner. They've already got their own shit to deal with, right? Um, so that's a great one. I love that. All right. Who would you want to have dinner with, non-family, living or dead? Three people. Uh, oh, oh, I tell you, one would be my sort of one of my writing, you know, artistic crushes, which is a woman called Phoebe Waller-Bridge. I don't know if you know her. She's a, she wrote Fleabag and oh, Killing Eve. Yeah. She's a British writer. Yeah. She's just... Like I love everything about that woman. She's amazing. Uh, I'd love to have uh, dinner uh, dinner with her. Probably another one would be Stephen Fry. Do you know Stephen yeah, of Fry? Course. Yes, yes. So I just love his approach to life. To you know, to sort of uh, his opinions. He's a, such a smart guy, but how he thinks about the world just seems mm-hmm. to doesn't seem to track with left or right. It just seems. I just it resonates. I with love me. people he, like that where you can't even tell where they stand politically it doesn't matter it's just yeah strong yeah educa- yeah i love Stephen fry yeah amazing. about not and, and i love because he talks a lot about um you know uh why we shouldn't be concerned about her too much about her to worry about other people's feelings because uh, not in a non-compassionate sense is that 
you know, you don't have a right not to be offended, right? You'll, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sorry, that's not your, uh, not your, your mm-hmm. goal. So, so I, I love his take on, on some of that stuff. It would be a fantastic, such a breadth of knowledge as well. So I'd love to have dinner with him. Um, a third one. Uh, well, actually now, you know, we're in the US and being a Brit, uh, we have a huge issue with gun violence. Mm. And it's a, an issue that I'm particularly passionate and interested in as well. And so it's probably be someone like James Madison, you know, the, one of the founding, uh, founders of the constitution. What did you mean? Early, who, who wrote the second <laughs> amendment. So what did you actually mean by this? Cause I can't tell you, James, Jimmy boy, the shit storm that's kicking off because of what you wrote now. What did you actually mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's get to the bottom of it. I just want to ch- chat right, with right, you. Yeah. If, if, uh, if I took you a couple of hundred years in front here and I told you the types of weaponry we would have, you know, would you change your writing? That'd be a fun, fun conversation. <laughs> no, exactly. I, I mean, and even though the, the times were so, were so different back then and what you mean by militia and so on, but if you could somehow transport yourself and describe the world that it would turn into a few hundred years later, mm. what, what would your sense be of that then? Um, I know that would be, that would, they, they would be the discussions I would love to have. Yeah. That's a good one. All right. There's your three. I've got one more question for you. Yeah. All right. Where do you see yourself in the next three to five years? Well, hopefully to uh, be have um, a, a few su- another few successful films under yes. our belt. Yes. Uh, but I think more importantly uh, is to be. I'd go to sleep at night excited to get up to more tomorrow morning to to do something and passion, which I have for this. Uh, I think I, actually I'm really discovering passion, true passion for the first time in my life. Oh. I, I mean, for in professionally, I mean, I've always known I've loved what I've done. That's not the but the when Leslie used to say to me, you know, sometimes I I can't sleep at night. I'm so excited to get up to train, which was such a foreign thing to me. I'm like, wait, what? people actually think like that you know and I've always felt that I'd love to have that and now I have it I'm so you know a Sunday is a Tuesday I just can't wait to get back into reading and writing and I just love it so I hope that I'm still doing that and I can find a way to to get paid for doing it (laughs) mate I can hear it in your voice I really can your passion your enthusiasm your knowledge everything about it it's just been this has been a really fantastic conversation i truly appreciate you for coming on um so thanks mate this is a great oh, place my to pleasure finish. greg yeah. love that we've been a fan of you both of you for many years and so thank you for having us both on oh, i have vice versa i was saying to leslie on the last episode i i think uh we've all got to get together at some point here we'll come over to la we or do we do this way. absolutely to uh we've got some, we've got some uh war wounds and skeletons in the closet i'm sure we'd all have a laugh about absolutely absolutely well, <laughs> well simon i do want to have you on a, the show maybe in a six months or so? Again, I think these conversations is, I think there's a lot of people just so eager um, to want to learn more about actions they can take to help mm-hmm. them with their mental fortitude and everything else. And I think having you come on and be able to share that knowledge has just been fantastic. So thanks again, mate. My pleasure. All right. And everybody can find all the show notes and timestamps at bennettendurance.com forward slash media. Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit BennettEndurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time. 
and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.